0: Today we'll be looking at a deadly sermon in more ways than one, Uh, but it ends in a nice note as we see the Apostle Paul um, really has to adjust to the providential leading of the Lord in his uh, ministry choices, which uh, end up being quite beneficial for us. So today we're going to look at the first 12 verses of the book of Acts chapter 20. Please give attention now to the reading of God's Word. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after these days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. That is a long speech. That's not in the text. That's just my editorial comment. Never complain about a long sermon again. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, and as Paul talked still longer... And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little Comforted. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. And what we need more than anything else in our lives is the truth. Truth that is your truth. And we pray that you would speak to us today, that your word would correct us, instruct us, train us, convict us, drive us to Jesus, help us find comfort and hope in him and this we pray in Christ Jesus name amen. This chapter chapter 20 tells us how Paul left Ephesus where he had lived for approximately three years and later on we will see the farewell to the Ephesian elders next Sunday in verses 17 through 38 because number one it is really the only sermon or address in acts which is delivered to a christian audience and it is the only speech used to specifically to the original christian leaders elders or bishops this therefore shows us what the words of encouragement were that paul used strengthening young churches with new leaders in, verses 19 through, in chapter 19, verse 21, Luke indicated that Paul was planning three very important journeys. To, number one, to Macedonia and Greece, secondly to Jerusalem, and thirdly to Rome. Acts 20 records the completion of the first, that is Macedonia and Greece, and the beginning of the second as Paul intends to go to Jerusalem. Paul's pattern, as we have followed him in the book of Acts, was to return to churches that he had previously founded or planted and to encourage and strengthen the believers. Only after his three years in Ephesus did he have an opportunity to revisit churches of Macedonia and Achaia, which is Greece, established on his second missionary journey. Ephesus was included in that visitation, by means of an encounter with the elders of the church in the coastal town of Miletus. Although it marks the beginning of Paul's final journey to Jerusalem and then to Rome, this chapter represents a conclusion to the narrative of his ministry in Ephesus. And we get greater insight into Paul's relationship with this city and something of his struggle. Now... For some three years, Paul had made Ephesus sort of the base for his evangelistic and church planning ministry in Asia Minor. But Luke shows us that Paul never intended to remain there permanently. We are told that Paul, and he always had this passion to return to Jerusalem, and then after that to go to Rome, which was the most influential city of the empire. Uh, in verse we told that we are told that Paul planned to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome and Jerusalem was his goal but earlier chapter 20 shows us that this trip was continually interrupted and diverted into detours and delays. Why? Why would God send Paul on a road trip that was such, that went in such a roundabout way. Uh, The way he leaves Ephesus is in no way going toward Jerusalem or Rome. And so why did he take such a roundabout route? Why were there so many diversions, detours, and delays? That's something worth thinking about. Why did he take such a route as this? First, we see that it he intended it to be somewhat roundabout because he wanted to combine a typical visit to the churches of Macedonian Greece with his trip home and verse 2 tells us that he set out for Macedonia which of course is not as I said earlier the most direct route to Jerusalem I know it's hard to hear all these cities without a big map in front of you and maybe one day we'll have um, what do you call them Um, projectors and screens, so that I can pop a big map on there, and you won't be lost. But we don't have that today, so I'm not going to get into too much detail about each city. But he set out for Macedonia, and he could have gone right to the coast of Asia Minor. He could have sailed home to Jerusalem, but he intended to go over to Greece and sail home from there. Uh, We know that he was about to sail for Syria so that he could visit the churches he had planted there. What does this show us? It again shows us that the ministry of encouragement is vital. It is absolutely crucial, especially for newer believers. I want to ask you a question this morning. How much time do you spend encouraging other people? How much time are you willing to invest in encouraging and discipling and interacting with and praying for a new believer. Encouragement is essential because we get discouraged, we get the wind taken out of ourselves. Sometimes we get broken in life. Sometimes what we need is someone to come alongside, sit with us, not preach us a sermon, not tell us a morality play, but rather put their arm around us and support us and encourage us and help us. Now I know that some of you have that gift in this church and you use that gift often when you notice that people are grieving or hurt or broken or falling away or slipping away or lapsing you take it upon yourself not as a member of any committee not because you hold that title in a church but you do it just because you know how important encouragement is and I can think of times in my life over and over again where people just happened to be there not happen to be there God sent them there and they said things to me that lifted my soul and encouraged me. I've had people rebuke me. I have had people correct me. I've had people do all kinds of things to me, and I'm sure in every case I needed it. But this was Paul's heart. This was his heart, to encourage the believers. Again, we have the Greek word parakalasis, encouragement, which means to call someone alongside and to bear the burden with them. You know that people are experiencing deep trauma in our country, especially as Guy mentioned earlier because of COVID and because of the lockdown. There are a lot of lonely people. There are a lot of hurting people. There are people who need just to be encouraged A phone call a card so many of you send me cards and make phone calls to encourage me and I cannot tell you how much that helps me but I'm not the only one that needs it we all do we all need from time to time uh, an encouraging word a pat on the back a squeeze on the arm to say I understand I, I I'm feeling it I get it my heart goes out to you and I pray the Lord will support you So we learned that encouragement is such an important ministry we should not let ourselves be very inconvenienced in order to provide it. It has a priority in ministry. But notice also on the way Paul met opposition and danger. God is leading him here. And so he meets opposition and danger which turned the trip into a far longer one than he had ever planned. He got to Greece and he stayed there for three months. Greece is where Corinth is and uh, you know anything about the Corinthian correspondence some of you are studying second Corinthians you will know that Paul had quite a relationship with his church he wrote them four letters we only have two of them preserved for us but it is uh, fascinating when you look at there but he got the grace he stayed uh, Greece he stayed there for three months and he learned of a plot against him, and as a result, he was forced to return to Macedonia, a far longer land route to his destination. Then in verse 16, we are told that he intended to go back to Ephesus, but again he had his plans disrupted by a reported plot. Thus, by the end of all of this, he was in a big hurry to reach Jerusalem. What possible advantage were these difficulties. Now, I am a person who believes in what is called the meticulous sovereignty of God. Meaning what? Meaning God oversees every detail of my life. There is nothing that enters my experience. There's nothing that touches my life that does not pass through the loving, tender heart and hands of my God for me. But I often have difficult time and I know some of you do because you've shared it with me I have a difficult time understanding and putting it together as to why this particular thing needs to happen to me right now my commitment to the loving meticulous sovereignty of God in every detail of my life gets tested regularly And so it did for Paul as well because Paul's the one who wrote most of the scripture about the sovereignty of God. Certainly these dangers in his life were distressing and frustrating since his schedule was constantly changing and disrupted. Yet from our perspective, looking back upon it, we can see several ways in which God used all of these delays in Paul's life. Generally, it means that the churches receive far more words of encouragement from Paul than he had planned. A second thing is uh, the masterful farewell to the Ephesian elders that takes up the last part of this chapter that we'll look at next week would have never been delivered if Paul's plans had stood. God simply knew that these people needed more of Paul than he himself had thought particularly the miraculous healing of Eutychus would have never occurred if Paul had not returned through Macedonia. Most commentators and scholars believe that Paul wrote the book of Romans while he was in Greece on this trip. Can you imagine life without the book of Romans as a Christian? I mean that is the greatest articulation of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. And that book may have never been written unless Paul's plans had been abruptly changed and altered. And so what I generally try to tell myself and people is when unexpected, undesired interruptions occur in my life, there's more to my life than just me. Maybe God's doing this to me to help someone else the selfish dimension of my existence which i am disgusted with often looks at these things and go all right can't i have just one moment of comfort can i have just one moment where it's not hard can't i just and the answer is no god knows what he's about And he's doing far more through these times of interruptions than we're often willing to see and we probably will not see or know until we see him face to face, If even then. But God is doing more in us. And so often when you are delayed or detoured or frustrated or distressed or disrupted or discouraged, trust that God knows what he's about. And if you look at the Apostle Paul's life, another one I can think of is Joseph. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and as a result, through many trials and temptations, he rose up to be a great leader who saved his family and the nation. It preserved the seed ultimately through which Christ had come. If these brothers had not sold him into slavery, into Egypt, then there never would have been... Israel there never would have been a Jesus to save us it was a horrible thing and when he confronts them at the end of Genesis 50 verse 20 he says to his brothers your intention your heart you meant it to me for evil but God meant it to me for what good God meant it for good what a statement it doesn't mitigate the evil intentions and sinfulness of their actions, but insists that God's loving purposes can never be thwarted by them. In the same way, the enemies of Paul were used by God for good. This could not have been something Paul could see from his vantage point at the time, but we can see it from ours. And when our life's plans go seriously awry, do we remember Joseph's words and Paul's life. That's why that's in here. That's why God gives it to us to show us that these little detours are His intention. Um, I'm trying to think of that song by Phil Cagie, which was a poet of uh, the poetry of someone else. Disappointment is His appointment. Disappointment is His abo- appointment, so that I may better find the thwarting of my purposes was God's very uh, gracious mind toward me. God thwarts our purposes. I remember when I came here to plant this church, some of you are going to gasp, in 1988. Some of you weren't even a sparkle in your father's eye in 1988. But when I came here to start this church, I had the blueprint. I went to the best church planners in the nation. We sat down. We drew up everything I needed to do in the first three months. And then the next three months, we had a plan, like a business plan, as to how this church would uh, be founded and founded. Guess what? None of it worked. None of it went like the plan. I mean, I'm sitting at six months later, sitting in my room in the fetal position going, I need to find somewhere to go. It's just not working here. I'm in the wrong line of work. But remember that. I don't know why it took so long on that. Maybe some of you have been wrestling with that. And so we come to the next section that I wanted to elaborate on. And that is the shift from the Sabbath to the Lord's Day. Because when we get to verse 7... Now, Paul met a a lot of interesting people who you will run into again and again. If you read Romans chapter 16, he comments on most of them. And uh, they went on ahead and were waiting at Troas. uh, And then Paul ultimately came to Troas where he stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, notice the first thing in this verse is the word we. And when Luke, in his narrative, uses the word we, what is he saying? I was there when this happened. You're getting eyewitness account of what's going on. Sometimes Luke heard from others. Sometimes it was eyewitness account. And so one of the things that I wanted to see is Paul tells us that he, he observed the seven-day feast of unleavened bread with the Philippian church, No doubt showing them the fulfillment in Christ, the final Passover lamb and its inner purity evokes for us um, whom he died, the Passover lamb. He mentions it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Then Luke writes, we sailed away from Philippi to Troas in Asia, indicating that he had now rejoined Paul's group, having stayed at Philippi on Paul's second journey. Paul and his company spent a full seven days in Troas gathering with the church to break bread on the eve of their departure on the first day of the week. Now listen, Paul was still continuing in his ministry to go to the synagogue and preach and teach on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday. The church gathered on the first day of the week. Here they gathered to eat, that is a common communal meal, which was usually uh, ended by a celebration, either begun or ended by a celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so we know from this text that this is a worship service. And we know also from 1 Corinthians 16, uh, yes, that the saints met on the first day of the week. Now, we know. And if you want to read the thing in the front of the bulletin about the um, Sabbath day, uh, that comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Seventh-day Adventists, we used to rent their building years ago, assemble for worship on Saturday, thus we could meet there on Sunday. They hold the conviction that the true Sabbath is that which God has established in creation on the seventh day of the week. The Jewish nation has held that throughout its history, and there are many Christians who believe that the Sabbath remains the seventh day of the week rather than the first day of the week. Those who hold to it believe that the church is in violation of the law of God by worshiping on Sunday rather than on Saturday. It would take nothing less than the Word of God to authenticate a shift in the day by which Christians assemble for worship and that word was delivered historically through God's prophets in the Old Testament and through his apostles in the New Testament, is there an apostolic sanction for the changing of the day of solemn assembly from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday? The term Sabbath means seventh. Not so much seventh in a series, but seventh in a sequence. According to the Hebrew concept, the day could be Wednesday or Thursday just as easily. In the Old Testament, the seventh day that was observed was Saturday. However, Justin Martyr noted that by the early decades of the second century, the practice of Christians meeting weekly occurred on Sunday rather than Saturday. This was virtually universal in every city and village. The question is whether this was a second century innovation unwarranted and the departure from the biblical mandate or whether it was established by the first century church with apostolic warrant i think you understand which one i hold to because we're not meeting on saturday we're meeting on sunday so i believe it does have apostolic um warrant to suppose that the day has changed. And there are many reasons. The resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred on the first day of the week, which is really the inauguration of the new covenant. And so the practice of Christians, uh, also called the eighth day of creation by some, the new creation, but that the Sabbath has become the first day of the week for those who are believers in Christ. I could get into far more Uh, of this and you would ever want to know but I think I'll stop with that. Now this is a pretty detailed account. Uh, Again Luke is an eyewitness and so as we move to look at the other uh, Paul spent a full seven days in Troas gathering with the church to break bread on the eve of their departure on the first day of the week. This is not merely a social event, but an assembly for worship in which Paul preached and the Lord's Supper was uh, observed, and the reference to breaking bread, literally the bread, after midnight in verse 11 shows it. The definite article is omitted in most translations, but is present in the Greek. The church worshiped on the first day of the week, which had been set apart by the Lord's resurrection as the Lord's day. Also, you can see that in Luke 24 and Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. Now, first we are told, what about this guy named Eutychus? The funniest thing I have found out about Eutychus is what his name means. His name means fortunate. Fortunate. So you could call him fortunate. First, we are told that he was a Neonios which is a general term for a young man, but in verse 12, he is called a pice, which is usually used for someone 10 to 15 years of age. Second, we are told enough about the conditions of the meeting to explain how he fell asleep. There was an evening meeting still going on after midnight, and it was a long meeting in which Paul talked on and on and on, an unusually candid description of a common ministerial sin Luke mentions that there were many oil lamps going in that upper room creating a stuffy maybe even a little smoky atmosphere the fact that Eutychus was sitting on the window ledge and these windows are not like windows in our home which don't go all the way to the floor they went from the ceiling to the floor And so he didn't climb up in a window and fall out. He was sitting at the window. And when he fell asleep, of course, he fell out. Speaking of people going to sleep in church. When I was in Louisiana, I had a man that came every Sunday. Every Sunday. He never missed. And he sat right over there about where Keith Turner is. And I would notice that during the song service and everything that led up to the sermon... He's wide awake. The minute I got up and started reading scripture, I would look at him and he started leaning. And he would start to lean this way. And so, you know, as I got into my first point, I'd look over, he's out. Occasionally he would fall over on the person next to him. And so it was noticeable. It was almost like everyone on that side of the room was watching. One day he wasn't sitting by anyone. He leaned over like that. He hit, hit the chair beside him, fell completely out, and jumped up. I had another man in Tennessee who was a farmer, and he was a hyper person. He, he, he didn't like to sit still, and he, he was a hard worker, and he worked long hours, and he was a really great guy. And so one Sunday morning, he came to church, and it was a little warm in the building. It might have been spring, and the air wasn't low. And I was waxing eloquent from the pulpit. And all of a sudden, I see he's asleep. And I keep talking. Then I hear him stand, jump up out of his seat, and go, Hey! <laughs> <laughs> and I stopped and I said, Hi. <laughs> what else do you do? He never came back to the church. He was so embarrassed. He never came back. But here, Paul was testing the limits. I mean, this is a long time. Now, he wasn't just preaching. He did preach, but he also taught like a Sunday school class in which there was dialogue and discussion. But it was like he was giving him everything he possibly could. He went on and on. Eutychus was sitting on the window ledge and it indicates that he'd been fighting the tendency to fall asleep. He moved to the window to get fresh air. As a confirmation of this perception, we see that he was sinking into a deep sleep, a verb form that is progressive, showing that it was a lengthy process. Maybe he was nodding off a lot. He fell asleep, fell to the ground from the third story, and when they ran ran down to pick him up, he was dead. Some of your modern translations say, He was as dead as if he didn't really die. The Greek said he was dead. Paul ran down there immediately, threw his body on the boy, and the boy's body embraced him and said, Don't fear, he is alive. It's a very moving sight. But what evidence do we have that uh, Luke is telling us it's a miracle and not merely a resuscitation? First, Luke says that when he was picked up, he was dead. The Greek text simply says, again, he was dead. Second, Luke was a physician and was eyewitness to the event, and he pronounces him dead. Third, the action of Paul with the boy is strongly reminiscent of both Elijah and Elisha's ministry in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. The parallels are obvious, both laid on the dead person but Elisha did the same physical action it wasn't that Paul was prostrated over uh, prostrated over Eutychus describing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation but rather like Elijah and it was a resurrection not a resuscitation and so Luke would record in his book second volume of Acts, another miracle that the Lord used to show people that Paul was authenticated as God's instrument. So what do we learn today in this text about Christian worship? This is the earliest reference we have that Christians met weekly on Sunday, the first day of the week, for worship, not as the Jews had. If we wonder why meet Sunday night, you have to remember that in the pre-Christian culture, Sunday was not an off day. And since many of the early Christians were slaves and servants, they would have not been free to meet in the morning. Secondly, on that day, they broke bread, which meant they ate together and also broke bread celebrating the Lord's Supper. Third, that the preaching was very much a part of the service. On first sight it appears that it was an enormously long sermon, he spoke until daylight, but John Stott points out the word translated spoken, verse 7 and 9, is a word dialegomai, which means to dialogue or discuss, and therefore in addition to teaching there would have been much more like a Bible study in which there was question and answer and sharing of insights. But the word in verse 11 for Paul speaking is homileo, from which we get the word homiletics or homily, which means sermon. It was a sustained sermon. The implications of this are important. When we come together on the Lord's day, we combine the word and sacrament of the Lord's Supper together in worship. We have uh, there the opportunity to both minister the Word of God to our hearts and also the sacrament, uh, which again uh, preaches the Word. The Word and what Luther called the picture of the Word. The Word made visible. That's what happened in Acts chapter 20 in the verse 12 verses. What a powerful passage this is. Although threats loomed on the horizon for the apostle, his concern was that fellow Christians stand fast in their hope, resting on Christ's sufficiency, and focusing on encouraging one another, because the word encourage is found again in verse 12. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's the same word. As the word encouraging in verse 1 it's an inclusio which means the text is emphasizing encouragement that is what God says to us today from his word let us pray Heavenly Father we thank you again that your word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword is able to divide between the bone and the mirror and the spirit and the heart we pray that your word would find its way into our heart and there it would take root and produce fruit in us that will redound ultimately for your glory and this we pray in christ's name amen